Hi, thanks for joining us as we uh, go through the book of Numbers in our study, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're in Numbers chapter 22 today. We're going to finish that uh, chapter up as we uh, study uh, a journey with Jenny. Now, I'll get to why I called it a journey with Jenny in a little bit. But uh, as we look at Numbers 22, I want you to, to think back maybe to one of those moments in your life where you felt completely unnerved or helpless. You felt like you, you had no control, but in the end, maybe you were really thankful that God had his sovereign watch care over you, that he protected you, that he just, you knew he was looking out and you were very, very thankful for it. Dylan and I had one of those uh, instances this week. I was taking her to her volleyball practice and on the way to her volleyball practice, it was, uh, we were on Route 934 and we're going to make a left-hand turn. And while we were there, somebody came flying down 934 at about 55 miles an hour and plowed into the back of our car. And it hit hard, and I was extremely nervous. I saw it coming in the rear view, and there was nothing I could do about it by the time I realized what was going to happen. And it was one of those moments where I can just look back and say, God providentially cared for us in an amazing way. For us to be able to just walk away with nothing more than some aches and some pains, a little bit of a headache. That was a blessing of the Lord. That was his, his watch care over us. And we were able to actively experience God's sovereign hand of care, watch over us. And something that could have been far more deadly, far worse. And I was very thankful for God's protection this week and his, his watch care, his sovereign hand of protection upon our lives in, in that moment. But what about those moments in our life when we don't see God actively providing or protecting or caring, or we feel that way? Maybe it's we, we have these fears of the, the looming financial crisis that everybody keeps talking about that America's going to go through, the, dealing with the whole pandemic. Maybe it's getting news from a doctor or waiting to hear you hear about the loss of a loved one. And, and you start to wonder, is, does God care? Is God looking over us? Is he protecting us? What about all these unknowns in the world? What about the things that we can't see? What about the changes, the adjustments to life? Maybe it's a new boss. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe you're moving and you're, you're really nervous and the kids are worried about going into a new school district and there's all those changes that occur. Maybe it's the change in leadership in our country that has you completely out of sorts. Maybe it's the fear that one day you realize there, there'll probably be changes in leadership in our church down the road, decades down, but and, and it unnerves you. It unsettles us to think, oh, things, things change. And life changes. Things happen. And what do we do when we feel like, is God, is God there? Is God working? How do, we, how do we reconcile that? How do we wrestle with those difficulties? Well, we come to Numbers chapter 22. There is definitely a moment here where Israel's going to feel a little unnerved. They're going to be wondering, what, what's God doing? And actually, it's sort of where we left off the last time. When we look at Numbers 22 here, we're going we're gonna to pick up in right around verse 20. But let me give you just that, that quick background just to remind you of where, how we got there. If you remember in verses 1 and 2 of, of Numbers chapter 22, Balak was this pagan king who was going to uh, call upon Balaam, a sorcerer of the dark arts from Mesopotamia, to come and to curse Israel. Israel was mighty. Israel was, there were many of them, and they were pressing against Moab's border. And the king of Moab, which is Balak, K is for king, remember, he is, he's nervous. He's wondering, are they, am I next? Look what they just did to, to the guys who defeated us, Sion and Og. And, and so now they're, they're nervous about them coming. So Balaam is going to then go and seek permission from God to, uh, to curse the children of Israel. And he has to go and ask God for permission. We see it like verses 5, 6, uh, a little bit after that as well, all the way through verse 12. And we find this interaction here is going to really highlight God's sovereignty. Did you, did you catch that last time? When Balaam has to go to God to ask for permission to curse them, what is it, who is that telling you who's in charge? It's not Balaam. 
Moses is subtly looking and saying, hey, remember, God's, God's in control. Nothing is going to happen to us without God knowing about it, without God allowing it. And so Balaam actually has to go and seek the permission. And we know that God tells him, down in verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So God says, no, you can't go curse my children. They are mine. And, and nothing can thwart God's blessings. When God sets his mind to bless, nothing, nothing on earth can bless or take that away. Nothing in the spiritual realm can thwart that. And that's, that's where we're, we're leaving off last night. But Balak's persistence and Balaam's desire for profit led God uh, to allow, allow Balaam to seek for his unrighteous desires. In verses 13 to 20, we see that where Balaam is going to, Balak's going to go back to Balaam and he's going to say, I'll, I'll give you whatever, blank check, give you all the power, all the fame, all the notoriety. I just want you to come, just come. And so Balaam says to the, the emissaries, well, let me, let me go see, let me go talk to God, you know, go spend some time in, in communion with God and see if he's you know, what he has to say on the matter. In other words, he's seeing if God's changed his mind or what's, what's going to happen. And that's, we left the story there last time with this unnerving moment for Israel. Do you remember it down in verse 19 and 20? Uh, verse 19 is where Balaam says, I pray you tarry also here that I might know what the Lord will say unto me more. Now, we all know God's already told them no. There's, uh, you know, and he said, you don't, no. You're not going to do this. And Balaam says in verse 20, or God says to Balaam, if the men came to call thee, or since they've done that, and your heart is desirous of this, fine, go ahead. I'll let you, I'll let you go. But you're not going to do, you're not going to say anything that I don't tell you you're going to say. God is still going to look. And as Israel's hearing this, this story, and remember, Israel hears the Balaam story. They don't experience the Balaam story. They didn't, go, they didn't know this was happening. They heard about it. God revealed it to Moses. And as Moses shares it with the people, they're hearing this. And that brings some of the humor in and some of the, the irony because they're looking and saying, there's no way God's going to let him go. And all of a sudden, guess what? He's going. And they're like, whoa, wait. God, God's allowing. And that could potentially be unnerving because if God allows him to go, is God going to allow him to curse us? Is God going to... Not, not be on our side. And, and there's that potential for that, that concern, that fear. Does God have our best interest at heart? Now, I know we would never think that, would we? We would never be thinking, oh, I wonder if all these difficulties, does God really care about us? Does God really know about this? Does God have our best interest at heart? God here is testing Balaam. Will, will he enrich himself? Will Balaam enrich himself at the expense of others? Or would he show some restraint in order to be in accordance with what he knows to be right? Balaam already knows God said no. But is he going to go anyway? God's going to give him some of that free will and say, you make the decision. Will you show loyalty to me, the true and sovereign God of the universe? Or are you going to go after your own greedy desires? Now, it doesn't take long for us to, to notice that. And it doesn't take Balaam long either because verse 21 and Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. He is going to go on a journey. And, you know, there was something I thought about this week in relationship to this. There are just some things you don't need to pray about. When it came to verse 20, he's like, oh, I pray that you stay here. I'm going to go commune with God. I'm going to go talk. Does he really need to ask God? Or does he already know what God has said? When God says no... When God says don't do, when God says do this, we don't have to pray about it. I don't have to pray and wonder, God, do you want me to be a witness for you? He's already told us he does. I don't have to pray about that. I can pray for courage and boldness, but I know that God wants me to be a witness. I don't have to, I don't have to pray and say, God, do you, do you want me to lie to this person or not? We already know. God has said don't do it. So we don't have to, there are just some things we don't have to pray about. I know it sounds a little unspiritual, but when God has declared it, positive or negative, it's pretty clear for us. Let's not go against that, but let's follow after what God is saying. In spite of Balaam's efforts, God is still going to care for Israel. And this is that theme that is going to go through. Even though Israel 
I'm going to allow some of this to happen. I've still got your back. I still care for you. He says, the word I shall say unto you, that you shall do at the end of verse 20. God is demonstrating his authority here over the prophets, the false prophets in this case, over the nations, all of those outside of Israel. It's not just, God is just not sovereign to the Israelite nation. He's not just the God of Israel who only stays in Israel. He is the God of the universe. He is the one who has preeminence over all things. He is the God of the Moabites. He is the God of the Australians. He is the God of the Canadians. He is the God of all people. And he is over every nation and over everything that is here. Even the things we can't see, God is over the angels. We, we, we have to come to grips with the fact that God is not just this local God for a group of Jewish people in the Old Testament. Jehovah is God, and he is the sovereign God of the universe, the one that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to them. We, we realize that they are, he is God. Even the wrath of man, Psalm 76, will praise God. In other words, Psalm 76 highlights the fact that even in someone's worst attempts to show anger and malice and wrath toward man, God will be praised. God will use it for his glory. We know that with Joseph. You meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. We see that come up in the scriptures. And God is looking and saying, Balaam, you're going to do your worst, but you know what? You're not going to be able to do what you want to do. You can go ahead, but you're not going to be able to curse my people. I will protect them. I have their back. And yet this guy still goes. He's still going to try and figure out how to get his money, get it what he wants, and, and just do his thing. He's going to try and end around. He's going to try and figure out something because he's so caught up with wealth and fame and fortune that it happens. God has now set the stage here to teach Israel and other nations that he sovereignly cares for his people. He's going to let this play out, and he's going to demonstrate, Balaam, I'm in control, not you. Balak, I'm in control, not you. Israel, they may think they're in control, but I've got your back. I am the sovereign God who takes care of his people. And so he's, he's setting the stage for this. Now, when we come to verse 22 and following, I want, you, I want you to think about something for a moment. Can you imagine if animals were actually named for the description of the animal themselves, like what they look like or how they acted? I just was looking through animal pictures this week, and they sort of made me chuckle. Like, I've never heard a raccoon called a trash panda, but it, it makes sense. Like, he looks like a panda. He's in the trash. Or a manatee being called a floaty potato. Or a, a seagull being called a beach chicken. I mean, I just, I chuckled at that. The spiky floof. I mean, it makes sense. They sort of look floofy, but they're sort of spiky. The danger zebra. And when I was looking at that, somebody commented, are there really white, white tigers? Yes, there are. There are white tigers. But the danger zebra. Or the nope rope. I, I like that one. It's like, yeah, nope, not going to touch that thing. Just going to leave that snake there. But what about a, what about a donkey? Does anyone know, do you know, maybe someone who's listening, do you know what a female donkey is called? A female donkey, the nickname for a female donkey is actually a Jenny. So that's why I called this message a journey with Jenny. Because Balaam is going to take a, a journey with Jenny, with his female donkey. Now, in Bible culture, this, it's important that it's, it plays out. It's used often, the feminine term here, and that she is the going to. So it's making a point here. But the reason is, in Bible culture, a female donkey was the epitome of stupid and stubbornness. Now, you may look and go, man, that is so politically incorrect to say. I'm not saying that for now. In Bible times, so please catch that little caveat there. In Bible times, they were considered the stupidest and most stubborn of animals. They were used for very little. In fact, there's only like two or three instances, even in the Bible, where you get a feminine use of a donkey because they just, they wouldn't typically use them for their travels or anything. And yet in this passage, the Bible is clear. Balaam's donkey is, is female. 
Now, you may say you're making a whole bunch out of nothing. Take that first concept there, that it is the epitome of stubbornness and stupidness. When Israel is going to hear this story, they're going to hear about, he's riding a few, oh man, this could, be a, this could be an interesting journey. Those animals are so stubborn. They are just, they're not the brightest bulb in the box. They're not the one you want. And so they make a point that Balaam is riding with, with, on his jenny, on, on his female donkey, and going through. And as he's going, while on this journey to Moab, you're going to see in verse 21, 22, uh, that he's going to not be going alone. He's going to have companions. He's going to be with the prince of Moab. He's princes of Moab. He's going to have his servants as well, two of his servants. And that plays into the story in a little bit here as to why Balaam gets a little bit angry, why, why his frustration occurs. And it says then that the anger of the Lord was kindled, verse 22, and God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way, of him, uh, way for an adversary against him. Now, one of the frustrations in this story is that God has just said, you may go, and then all of a sudden, he's angry because he went. The, the word there, because he went, or the word because, it can either have this idea of because, be, for the reason he went, that's why God is angry. Or it has another idea, or while he went. And Moses uses this, that phrase a couple different times. So it's not uncommon for Moses to use this idea of while Balaam was going, something happened along the way, or along the way, the Lord's anger was kindled. It wasn't directly because he just went. But as Balaam was going on this journey, the Lord's anger was kindled. And the Lord is going, to, is going to make sure that Balaam gets the message. That Balaam gets this message that he wants him to understand. And, and so then all of a sudden in verse 22 through 27, you have this unseen adversary. Well, he's unseen to Balaam. As we, as we will see in the story, or those of you who know the story, you already know who sees it and who doesn't see it. But this section is made up of three little mini scenes. You're going to have scene one in verses 22 and 23. Then you're going to have scene two, 24 and 25. And then scene three in 26 and 27. There are all these little snippets, but in those snippets, there are a number of things that, that reoccur, that happen over and over again. Some of, the, some of the similarities in this scene, the angel of the Lord is going to make Balaam's path difficult. Notice in verse 22, it says the the, uh, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, stood in the way for an adversary against him. Verse number 24, but the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall being on that side. So the first time he's standing in the way, now there's walls that are there. And then the third time, you're going to see in verse 26, um, it says that the Lord went and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. Now the angel of the Lord is standing. There's no way for the donkey and Balaam to get around him. And he is right there. So every single time the angel of the Lord puts, puts himself in a position where it's harder and harder for Balaam and the donkey to get around, to continue on their path. He is thwarting it. He is standing there, making it difficult for him. The angel stands as an adversary. Really interesting word here. Not used very often this way, but it's the word Satan or Satan. The angel of the Lord is going to be the Satan against Balaam on his journey. Think about that. Why do we call the devil Satan? Why is his name Satan? Because he is our adversary. He is the one who comes against us. He is the one who makes the way difficult. He is the one who is looking to stop us and to trip us up and to make it hard. So that word, this is not a, a, a veiled reference. This is not a, uh, an attempt to say, ooh, this might be satanic influence. No, this just using the general common noun that's used here. He's going to just be the adversary. That's the, the Hebrew word for adversary is the Satan or the, the Satan. So just an interesting wordplay that happens in the passage. But each scenario, he makes that path tighter for the angel to get around or for Balaam and the donkey to get around. He's going 
to complete his task to bring his mission to Balaam. That's what the angel, the messenger of the Lord, whether it is the Lord as a theophany himself or an angel as a messenger of Jehovah, uh, there's lots of debate on that. I don't have a definitive answer on it. Uh, But either way, the goal was Balaam, there's going to be a message and you're going to learn this lesson and you're going to learn it and we're going to make sure that you do. And he is making it more and more difficult for him to be able to, to get around. Balaam has no spiritual insight, though the donkey does. Every single time in all three of these instances, what do we have? Look in verse uh, 23. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. Down uh, verse 25. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And so she thrust herself against the wall to try and get out of the way. Uh, verse 27. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. You're, you're a Hebrew listening to this. And you're sort of chuckling, just like you should be. The stubborn, stupid beast of burden sees what the great seer can't see. There's some great irony that is happening here. And the donkey responds, and even responds appropriately. The first time, the donkey gets way out of the way, goes out into the field. The next time, the, with the walls, the, the vineyards, it's, it's a little bit tighter, but trying to get around. So the donkey's pushing against the wall and crushing Balaam's foot against the wall as he goes around. The third time, there's nowhere to go. So what does the, the donkey do? The donkey prostrates himself or her, herself, gets down as low as she can and won't move anywhere. Going to be stubborn and not move. And Balaam's just looking and saying, this is just a stubborn, stupid animal. This is, this is what donkeys do. This is what female donkeys do. They're stubborn. They're stupid. They just wander off. They just walk into walls. They just decide to plop down wherever. And, and this is happening. Blind Balaam in his anger responds all three times by striking his donkey. He's going to strike the donkey in verse 20, 23. First time he, he smites or he strikes, strikes the donkey to turn her into the way. Then he's going to do it again in verse 25. He smites her again, uh, hits her again. Then verse 27, he's going to take out his staff. Some say that maybe that's his magic staff that he does all his incantations and everything with in in his magical endeavors. And he's going to hit the donkey with that staff. He is angered by this situation. Extremely angry. Now, as I've alluded to, there is some definite irony in this, in this story and in this situation. The righteous one, supposedly, Balaam, supposed to be this great spiritual diviner, the one who has great divine insight to discern all these things of the spiritual realm. The righteous one is going to, or, um, the, I'll get to what I just said in a second. The righteous one in this case is the angel of the Lord is going to stand against the unrighteous is an adversary. The stupid, stubborn beast of burden has more perception. This is where I was wanting to say that. Uh, has more perception and insight than the professional seer of the divine. The donkey's response in, uh, in response in contrast to Balaam's, I find it hilarious. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord. The stubborn one becomes submissive bows down, gets in that position, walks away, wants nothing to do, and yet the spiritual one is angry. The spiritual one is hurtful. The one who's supposed to be this great individual is losing it. Losing it. Now remember, he's not the only one. He's not on this journey alone. There are other people with him. People who have hired him to go and to curse to go and to bring these great insights. And they're watching this unfold. And he's not seeing anything. Balaam's anger was kindled. And it's interesting, the exact same phrasing that is used for Balaam's kindling, uh, verse 27. And Balaam's anger was kindled. is the exact same phrasing up in verse 22, that God's anger was kindled. God's anger was kindled because... Balaam was not going the direction that God wanted him to go. And guess what? Balaam's anger was kindled because his donkey wasn't doing and going the direction that Balaam wanted. God's setting this up 
Balaam, you're acting like a donkey. You're being stubborn, stupid. You're not doing what the master wants. Except there's a good reason for your donkey. Now, Balaam doesn't get that yet. He doesn't understand that until all of a sudden something amazing happens. This is the part that everybody likes. The kids love this part of the story. Like, what? A donkey's going to talk. I mean, it's not Mr. Ed. It's not donkey. It's just God is actually going to miraculously make this donkey speak to Balaam. And they hold this conversation. Balaam is so infuriated with his donkey that he pulls out his staff, he strikes the donkey. Remember that? And then the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey. Moses wants to make sure that we understand that it is God who is opening the mouth. It is God who is placing the words, and this whole passage is about the words that are going to come out of the prophet's mouth. Is it going to be curses or blessings? God's going to open the mouth of a stupid, stubborn animal to speak. It says that the Lord, verse 28, opened the mouth of the donkey. And she says to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have hit me these three times? It's clearly a, a miraculous work by God. It's, uh, it, and you look at it, what have, I to do, what have I done these three times? Now, is redonkulous, and if you don't know what that word is, it's just a, it's a slang word for completely ridiculous, but I thought it fit here. Redonkulous as the moment is, look what happens in verse 29. I don't know about you, but if we have bunnies, our kids have bunnies, and if, you know, Mochi or Luke, one of them decides to start talking to me, uh, I'm, I'm either going to say, Sharon, I think I need to go to the hospital, or two, I'm running. I don't even, even if it's a little fluffy bunny, I'm, I'm out. And yet Balaam here in verse 29, Balaam says to the donkey, he just instantly starts talking to his donkey. Now, we don't know if the other individuals who are in the party could understand and hear the donkey speaking as well, if it was just a miracle between Balaam and the donkey, or everybody could hear the donkey speak. Either way, can you imagine sitting here? You've just hired this guy to come and curse your enemies. And now this guy is sitting there yelling at his donkey, and his donkey's talking back to him, and he's having this conversation with the donkey. Are you not starting to look and go, uh... <laughs> Why are we bringing this guy? Why is he getting all this gold and silver? What is going on with this guy? And Balaam talks back, and he's finding himself in this heated debate with his donkey. This great, brilliant mind, this stubborn, stupid animal. And they're having this debate. And as they're having this debate, it, the, donkey, the donkey is going to have this, the question answered. Balaam is going to reveal why he hit the donkey. Because the donkey made me look foolish. Did you catch that in verse 29? Because you have mocked me. Why does he feel mocked? Because the donkey's not doing what he wanted. Because there are other people around watching him. And so therefore, because of that, his anger is greatly kindled. And he is so frustrated that he wants to kill this animal. Notice what he says in the end. For right now, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you. That's what he's saying to his donkey. I would thrust you through right now. That's how frustrated I am with you. You have made me look foolish in front of these dignitaries. You have mocked me. You have not listened and obeyed my, my commands and what I desire you to do. Hmm, Balaam, interesting. Are you condemning yourself out of your own mouth? That you are not doing what the master, what the sovereign of the universe, the one you had to go seek permission to in order to curse the, the children of Israel. Are you not doing what he expressly said he did not want you to do? And you're trying to do it? If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. And so the donkey asked Balaam another question, verse 30. As the donkey said to Balaam, am I not the same donkey upon which you have ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever known to do this to you? And so you have Balaam listening to this question. And I love the response in the King James. I think it is, it's, it's, it's not Hebrew or anything. I just, I just find it hilarious. 
warning dad joke my kid said I had to say that when I, when I did this. Dad joke coming. Balaam in the heated debate, in the argument with his donkey, and his donkey says, have I ever done anything to you? Look what the King James says. He answers, nay. Okay, he probably didn't say it that way, but he says, nay. I just, I find that hilarious that you have, you have him answering the donkey, nay, no. But it's bigger than that. As he's heated in this debate with the donkey, wants to kill the donkey, Notice that God can use any messenger. Balaam's thinking he's some special, amazing individual. And yet God says, I can use, I can use your donkey. Okay, I don't need you. As you're listening as a Jew, that's, it's encouraging. If God can control a donkey's mouth, he can control this, this, seer, this seer. Communicating God's word is not dependent upon our esteem of the messenger. Total side, like, little thought here, but just think about it. God can use any messenger, including a donkey, to communicate his word. It's not dependent upon how high we esteem. The donkey, the female donkey, was not esteemed as very high, and yet God is going to use her in that situation to bring about his message, to start bringing it to fruition, God can use anyone. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, where we're reminded that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. We have the ability to communicate God's word. You do. I do. We ought to be. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm not smart. I'm not a pastor. I don't have great knowledge. You have the ability and God can use you. You might say, I'm just not knowledgeable. I'm foolish when it comes to the things of the Bible. Continue to learn, but continue to share. Because God will use, and it doesn't matter how high you esteem yourself or any, God can use anyone who is communicating his truth. But I have to think that as a Jew is listening to this for that first time, wait, this guy is supposed to be the one to come and to curse us, and he's losing an argument to a donkey. you got to think people are dying laughing. Moses is trying to tell this and not, not totally lose it. But Balaam's losing the argument to the donkey. It's happening. And so as, as it plays out, Balaam is still going to, to keep going, but unbeknownst to him, he is on this reckless path of pursuing Balak's gold. And instead of telling Balak about the truth of what God has said, Balaam is putting himself in danger. Now we know why. Because we have that perspective that we can look at the whole of the story. But Balaam still is not seeing what's clearly in front of him. But then, verse 31. Then, just like the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, now the Lord is going to open the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord, verse 31, standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down and fell flat on his face. So now you have Balaam, all of a sudden the Lord opening his eyes, allowing him to see what he should have seen and could not see. And so now he's going to, again, the Lord is involved in this. He's allowing him to see what he was blinded to. The angel of the Lord has a sword drawn, and he responds the way the donkey already has. Remember what the donkey did when he couldn't get around? He, he got all the way down. Balaam now is right next to his donkey, bowing down on that ground. All the argument went to the side for a second because he just realized, wait a second, there's something bigger happening here. Bows down, falls flat on his face, and the angel of the Lord now, verses 32 and 33, He's going to speak to Balaam. And as he talks to Balaam, he's going to say, why have you been hitting the one who's saving your life? Look what, look what he says. Angel of the Lord said to him, why have you smitten your donkey these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, to be that adversary, because thy way is perverse before me. And the donkey saw me and turned from me these three different times. Unless she had turned from me, Surely now I would have slain you and she would have lived. I would have saved her life. 
Balaam is thinking he had all the authority, all the power, all the right, and his, he was frustrated because his donkey would not obey, would not listen, would not heed his words and his directions. And all of a sudden he's come to this humbled point that says, wait a second, it was the donkey that saw. It was the donkey that knew. It was the donkey that had wisdom, not me. And so what does he do? If it wasn't for the donkey's perception, he would have died, and yet he's being cruel. I've hit you these three times. I've been your adversary. Why? Because your way is perverse or it is twisted. You're doing something that is, you're trying to be cunning. You're trying to to twist my words and to twist things so that you get your gain and you get everything that you wanted. You're, you're, you're being crooked. You're, you're being a charlatan, a weasel. You're being that type of individual. And so Balaam's response to the angel, he says, I have sinned. Now, don't look at this as some great act of repentance. He, it, it isn't. Look what he says. For I have sinned, for I knew that you, I did not know that you stood in the way against me. He's like, oh, I made a mistake. That's what, that's what he's saying here. He's using the, the word that's used for sin as the idea of, of making a mistake. Repentance requires that changing of mind and direction. He's saying, I made a mistake in that I didn't see. I should have seen you. Yes, you're right. I'm the seer. That's my bad. I'm sorry. You know, okay, that was, that was wrong. I've sinned. That's Balaam's attitude in this, not this great act of repentance. We know that even further because what, is, what does he say? Uh, what does he say next? If it displeases you, does he really even need to ask that question? I've stood in your way because your way is perverse or twisted. Way back. No, you may not go. Fine, go ahead. But you're not going to do this. You're not going to accomplish this. I'm the one in charge, Balaam. If it displeases you. He's not looking to change his mind. He's trying to figure out the end around. He's trying to figure out what he can do. This guy's supposed to be the divine discerner. And yet, it's not happening. Even the youngest Jewish boy, as they're hearing this story, they knew. We know. Balaam, God doesn't want you to do this. Turn around and go home. And yet, don't so many of us act like that? The things that divide our heart, that pull our strings, that we find to make ourselves feel significant or important, we will continue to go after them even if we know that God says no. Even if we know that God has made it pretty clear, you shouldn't be doing this. And we we find ourselves going and doing it more and more. And it sometimes takes a severe moment to bring us back. To, to, to wake us up. What, remarkable, what a remarkable scene to Balaam's blindness and complete and utter lack of power. He has no authority. He has no, and so God's message is going to get through to Balaam. He's going to hear, verse 35, he's going to make it clear. The angel of the Lord's going to say to him, Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak unto you that you shall speak. He's wanting to make sure that Balaam understood. You're still choosing to go do this, but you need to understand what they're paying you to do. You are not going to be able to do. I'm going to be the one who's going to put the words in your mouth. I'm going to be the one who's going to tell you what to do. You can go ahead. That's fine. Go after your desires. Go after what you want. And so the angel of the Lord says, you know, let's them go. You may follow your petty desires, but ultimately God's going to be glorified. And think about it. Anyone who resists God, even if they're considered wise, they're a fool. And yet how many times in my life have I been a fool? Because I do that. I follow after my heart's desire, my sinful nature and tendencies, rather than doing what God has told me to do. And I resist God. I don't yield to the Spirit. I push against Him. Balaam, you've twisted the plan. And you may think that you're going to figure out somehow to curse these people, but it's not going to happen, Balaam. Your plan is contrary to my will. When he, when he looks and says, that you will only speak what I shall say unto you. That's what you're going to speak. You're not going to do anything that I'm not going to allow you to do. And so you're not going to be able to speak unless I let you. Think about it. 
If I can make a donkey speak, Balaam, I can control what you say. You really think you're going to be able to figure out how to get around me? It doesn't matter where you're at, Balaam. You're not in Mesopotamia anymore. You're on your way to Moab. Guess what? I'm still here. I've been here along the way trying to get your attention. You don't want to see it. You don't want to listen. I'm not, I'm not bound to any certain area. I'm here. I'm, and I'm going to control, and I can't control what you say. From a Jewish perspective, I don't have to fear this foreign seer. God is in complete control of what he is going to say and what is going to be said against Israel. I didn't even know this was happening, and yet God has my back. I didn't see it. It was unseen, and yet God took care of us. That's encouraging. That reminds the people that God is over all, and God sees all, and God knows all. But think about it from Balaam's, his foolish greed. Look at what it's done. God has told him that, and and honestly, in a quite miraculous way, fair enough, speaking donkey, angel of the Lord, sword in hand, the same sword that Balaam wanted to have to kill the donkey. The angel of the Lord is standing there and saying, I have the sword in my hand and I could have killed you. It's a quite miraculous moment. And you're, he's going to say, I am only going to lie to say what I allow. He knows this means he won't be able to curse the Israelites. And yet what does he do? The end of verse 35, he goes with the princes of Balak. Even though he knows he can't fulfill He's so caught up in getting and figuring out a way to get his money. And then they unite. They come together. Verse 36 and 38. You have Balaam and Balak showing up at the, the border of Moab. And it's, if it wasn't, the story wasn't ironic enough and humorous enough. Look at what Balak says to Balaam when they arrive. He came out to meet him on the, at the city of Moab at the borders of Arnon. And Balak, verse 37, says to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to call thee? Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am I not able to indeed promote thee to honor? In other words, what Balaam is, Balak is saying to him is, Hey, Balaam, didn't I, didn't I uh, come? Why didn't you come when I first called? And really, Balaam, what took so long? <laughs> What took so long is, you know what, this guy had a pretty bad day or pretty bad week, however long it took to journey. His foot's been crushed by a donkey. He's been basically rolled over by a donkey. He's met an angel with a sword drawn on him on the way. Yeah, it, it, it took a little bit of time. You're right. But, you know, I, I would look at Balak and don't talk to me right now. I'm having a bad day. We'll deal with this later. But Balak is just like, what's, what's going on? Why is, it, why is it taking so long? And you, you get this sense that, okay, now the great seer and now the great kings, the Midianites and the Moabites, they're going to all unite together. And you, you almost get this picture of like the Avengers coming together and there's all these great superheroes and these super international, you know, diviners who are going to curse. This is going to be the end of Israel. Oh no, but really what you get is Dudley Do-Right. You get somebody who's not going to even be able to speak clearly out of his mouth. It's just going to be like these bumbling words that are going, because God's in control. God knows what's happening. He says, am I not able indeed to honor and promote you? Can't I do this? Don't I have this authority? Balak says to Balaam. Balak has neither the authority nor the ability to reward Balaam sufficiently to get what he desires. Balaam's response to Balak, finally, verse 38, he says to him, lo, I am come to you, have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that shall I speak. For the first time, he tells Balak the truth. He says, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. Perhaps they still thought that God could be manipulated, that they could find favor because they're going to go ahead with their plans. They're going to make sacrifices. They're going to be trying even more. So maybe they're thinking they can manipulate God and, and get this to work out. We don't know exactly all of that yet, but we know that at this moment, they're going to go forward. They're thinking they've got this. And yet Israel's looking from the back and saying, we don't have anything to fear. We don't have to worry about it. Balaam is humbly brought to the realization that neither he nor Balak has any authority outside of God's authority. He came face to face with the sovereign of the universe. And he realized, 
I can't say anything unless God allows me. As the Jews contemplate God's sovereign care for them, they look over this and they're like, wow, look at how God took care of us. We didn't even know. Look at how God controlled all these situations. Look at what God was doing in this great oversight. They had to realize this, and I think it's important for us to understand too. When we talk about God's sovereign care, God's sovereignty is not limited by location. Whether it's in the camp, whether it's in Mesopotamia, on the way to Moab, in Moab, when they're in the promised land, wherever they are at, God is in control. That is his, he's sovereignly in control. Whether we're at home or we're at work, whether we're at school or church, in the neighborhood or across the nations, God is in control. He is not bound by location. If he was, he would not be sovereign. He is in all places and over all things. He is above all creation. He is God. He is our sovereign God. God's sovereignty is not limited to certain personnel. If he can use a donkey to communicate, he can communicate through most anyone. He is still in control. Even if Moses or Joshua is leading. Moses is going to be gone and Joshua is in control. Oh no, is God, is God still? Yes, God's still in control. Aaron's gone. Eliezer's the high priest. But guess what? It's not, it's, God's not limited to certain personnel. God is in control. God is in control. Whether Trump or Biden, Democrats or Republicans, Pastor Burgraff or a new pastor, a new, loca- a new boss or a different boss, God's still in control. He's not, he's not limited by a personnel or certain personnel. He's God. He's above all the personnel he needs. I mean, doesn't even say like Jesus says when he was when he was coming in to Jerusalem, if they didn't if they didn't praise me, what would happen? The rocks would cry out and praise me. He 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 can use any vessel. He's not limited. God is in control and it's not just by personal. Whether you think you can witness or not, guess what? God's in control. He can help you do that. God's sovereignty is not limited to circumstances. When we look at all of our circumstances, he doesn't lose authority because a powerful king or a professional seer now comes against him. If we're going to rest and trust in Christ and in him alone, we are never merely a victim of circumstance. We're not a a victim of circumstance because God is not limited by the circumstances. He knows them. He's allowed them. He's in control. He hasn't lost, and so therefore I'm a victim of the the circumstance. Now, what do I learn from this moment? What what happens here? No circumstance is so big that God can't control it. No pandemic, nothing. Nothing is so big that God cannot control it. He's all-powerful. There's not one thing in this universe he cannot handle. He's never surprised. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Let that sink in for a moment. He was not caught off guard by a pandemic, by an election, by a fire in a house, by a miscarriage. It didn't catch him by by surprise. He was aware. He knew. It's never dawned on him. He knows, and he, he knows what he is doing to bring him ultimate glory and to provide us with a good and blessed life. He's not limited. He never faints. He never grows weary. He's strong and continues. The questions we bring up, will God be able to care for all of us at all the same time? Yes, absolutely. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He's everywhere and he has all power. Will he lose control? Has he lost control? For sure seems like it got. No, he's not lost control. In any of the situations, even if there is a financial crisis, even if we never figure out how to solve COVID-19, even in the midst of heartache, even in the midst of changes in leadership, he hasn't lost control. He's the sovereign God of our universe. Spurgeon said this, in the midst of trials, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Knowing that God is in control, knowing that he's got this. And as Israel hears the story of Balaam, they can look and say, wait, 
God's taking care of us. God knows what is best. We didn't even need to know about this situation. We just know that God is looking out for us. Why do we fret about so many of life's problems? We worry because we've given into the belief that God loves us less than he loves the birds of the fields, the flowers of the, the birds of the air, the flowers of the fields. Do you remember Matthew chapter 6? Where, interestingly, verse 24, the context is you cannot serve two masters. For either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll despise the one and cling to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. Just like Balaam's trying to do both, he, you can't do it. And he goes through the passage and he says, if God has clothed the grass of the field and tomorrow it takes care of it, how much more shall he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. He looks and he says, we, we think we can do these things, but we need to be trusting in God. If God cares for the lilies of the field, if God cares for the birds of the air, he cares for us. Who's a, we, we're arrayed far greater than they. And he cares for us. Our worry reveals the fact that we are believing a lie about God. And the answer is to remind ourselves of the truth that every day he sovereignly cares for us. God cares for us. So we hold on to the hope of Jesus Christ, our sure, our steady anchor. The one who anchors our soul, we anchor it to him. And he keeps us grounded. He keeps reminding us that I'm in control and we can hope and trust in him. All the events of the future, all the things that may happen in the next weeks and months that we don't know about, we can rest assured that in all of that, God's in control because he is sovereign. He is not limited by a location. He is not limited by people. He is not limited by circumstances. He is God for the future events. I think Corey Tim Boone summed it up best. In one statement, she said this, never be afraid to trust the unknown future to the known God. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's in control. I can trust in him. I can pillow my head at night because I know he's got this. Never be afraid to trust the unknown future to the known God. Lord, I pray that you would give me the strength, the faith to trust you in the midst of tumultuous times and chaotic events to trust you. Lord, help those who are listening to do the same. Lord, thank you for this really weird story. And yet we thank you that you, through it, remind us that you're in control. You can speak through a dumb donkey. You can speak through us. You can control the lips of that donkey. You can control our lips. You can control all those situations, God. You, we know you control the universe. Lord, help us to give you the preeminence that you deserve in our lives. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.